Hello, and welcome to the Trail to Mount Natanda. My name is Amanda Peters, and I am your friend on this adventure through the woods. How are you? How are you doing today? Uh, the weather has not been great uh, pretty consistently. It's been pouring, rainy, pretty nasty out. So I'm wondering about you. I'm worried, and I hope that you're doing well. It can be really tough to stay motivated on the trail when the weather is not great. And a lot of it is being uncomfortable, physical problems, but a lot of it is also mental problems. You know, things seem bleak, especially when you're on a trail as long as the Appalachian Trail. You might be... 50, 100 miles in, and there's no turning back now. You've already started this journey. So when it starts to pour and you're sitting there in your tent, barely, you know, staying above a couple inches of rainwater that's pooled on the bottom of the floor, you really have to think to yourself, is what I'm doing actually worth it? And the truth is it is. It's hard to stay positive. It truly, truly is. But you have to go out there with the mindset that, first of all, you're going to get wet. And you might as well make the best of it as you continue on this journey. Keep in mind that just because it's bleak now doesn't mean that there isn't sunshine on the way. Uh, Speaking of bleak moments... There's some news out there, and I'm sure most of you have already heard this, Uh, but the AT killer, James Jordan, has been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, So this article that I have here is from thetrek.co. AT killer, James Jordan, the Massachusetts man who killed uh, an Appalachian Trail through hiker and seriously wounded another in a May 2019 attack has been ruled not guilty in connection with that case by reason of insanity. The judge has accepted Jordan's plea uh, in Abingdon, Virginia, uh, following a hearing last Thursday. He will remain in federal custody indefinitely to receive psychiatric treatment. According to court documents, Judge James Jones ordered that Jordan should remain in federal custody until he has recovered from his mental disease or defect to the extent that his release or his conditional release would no longer create a substantial risk of bodily harm to another or serious damage to property. So, unfortunately, an incredibly sad ending to an incredibly sad story. Um... You know, it's important to remember the victim there that was killed. Uh, That was Ronald Sanchez Jr., a 43-year-old Iraq War veteran and a father of two. Uh, So today, you'll probably get this and listen to it sometime in the dark. And what better story for a dark, cold, and rainy night than a horror story? This story is coming to you from the best horror of the year, and that's horror, not whore, um, volume seven. 
and it's a collection of different stories. This one in particular is going to be called Winter's Children, uh, and it is written by Angela Slatter. So let's go ahead and get started. Grandma Joe's eyes light up when she sees me. You, you there, girl, boy, girl. Oh, she recognizes me. She just doesn't know me. I pin on a smile and approach, tiptoeing through the minefield of rockers, wheelchairs, discarded knee rugs, drooled upon dolls, magazines opened at half-done crosswords, all manner of old-age home sadnesses scattered across the floor. A sea of faces look up at me expectantly, all of them the same, the rigors of age rendering them alike. Gypsy, the home's resident dog, is in fact... In fact, she belongs to Mrs. Bodenbaum, but a lot of days Mrs. B forgets she owns a dog, so the Shih Tzu shares her love around to anyone who will give her a pat. Barks loudly. She, she's outside in the yard for her morning ramble, which generally consists of crapping on the most likely to be walked on piece of grass and trying desperately to get inside where there are tiny scratches, old people to feed her pieces of chocolate, cardigan pocketed, softened caramels, occasional meds, and a lot of other things not meant to be consumed by animals. Gypsy, it must be said, is basically a junkie with an accompanying sugar dependency. She also has an unhealthy fondness for me. I have to time my visits to make sure she's outside or she will not leave me alone, demanding attention and never-ending pats. Six months of pretending I like dogs is almost over. I move past the nursing staff, exchange frozen grins. Once I worried someone might recognize me, but now it's been too long. I don't know why that animal likes you so much, Missy, Grandma Joe says. Sure, now that I'm a girl, although she eyes my very short hair in a disapproving manner. Guess I'm just special, I say, and lean down to give her a peck on the cheek. It's Kirsty, by the way. I know, she snaps, but I can see the relief in her face that she doesn't have to remember. She smells like talcum powder and lily of the valley, eau de cologne. They've set her hair today, or yesterday, and the curls are still tight and white. You know the urge you get when to, to write in wet cement? Well, I get the same kind of urge when I see curls like these, except I want to touch them and feel the springiness. Past experience has shown she gets cranky when I do that, so I don't. How are you going, Grandma Joe? Not going anywhere, obviously, she says waspishly. She puts a hand against her cheek, letting her fingers catch in each furrow, as if wondering where the lines came from. I saw the photos she keeps in her room of when she got married. She was so beautiful. She looked like a work of art. Who'd have thought it would fade away, that beauty? Not her. I think about this every time I look in the mirror and remind myself, nothing's permanent. Certainly not life. Well, I thought... Maybe we could. What? She asks. What do you mean? You're not making sense, and what's with that stupid haircut? Why do you want to look like some kind of lesbian? You old bat. 
Who do you think you are? I take a deep breath, trying to be nice, patient with an old woman's foibles. I'll thank you to shut it, or I won't be taking you on any excursions. She shrinks, curls up like a spider for a moment, then turns on the biggest of smiles, and her hair seems to positively glow and fluff before my very eyes. Some animals make themselves bigger to intimidate predators. Grandma Jo makes herself cuter. I sit next to her, giving her a sideways glance. Her face is the picture of expectation. What kind of excursion, Kirsty? She almost trails, and I nod approval. Good girl. Oh, just a drive, I thought. Maybe go into town for coffee and cake. Maybe drive to a park and sit on the swings for a while. Her smile widens. Can we have ice cream? If you behave. Her face clouds over. But you'll bring me back here? I lean in close and say very quietly, No, Josephine. Tonight I won't bring you back here. And her expression is a sunburst, the brightest thing I've seen in a long, dark time. Shall I pack a bag? I shake my head. Nope. We'll get everything you need later. Nothing for you to worry about. She settles in her chair, wiggles into the depths of the sheepskin rug, and looks contented as a cat. I stand and touch her shoulder. I'll be back later this afternoon, okay? Can you be waiting outside at 5.30? Just after you've had dinner? Where are you going? She demands. I've got some things to do. So after your dinner, wait for me on the ring road around the back, okay? And be subtle. I know how to sneak out, young lady. We nod at each other, satisfied, each thinking ourselves smarter than the other. There's a commotion at the door of the garden. Gypsy is throwing herself against the thick glass, and one of the attendants is making her way over to let her in. Mrs. Budenbaum is glaring at the dog as if she doesn't recognize it at all. Exit Kirsty, stage right. Grandma Jo doesn't believe in incognito. She's standing beside the bay where the ambulance parks, wearing a Greta Garbo sunglasses that cover half of her face, a floppy straw hat, a scarf long enough to give Isadora Duncan nightmares, and some kind of drapey lounging outfit which may, in fact, be pink chiffon pajamas. Her handbag, in conjunction with gravity, is working to overbalance her. I pull up and lean over to open the door before they win. She gets into a ca the car in a matter that can be described as either stately or god-awful slow, depending on your upbringing. I'm calm. Just the granddaughter collecting her nana for a bit of a drive. Doesn't matter if anyone sees me after this trip, I'll be gone, no more than a dusty of, mester, of, of memory. Grandma Jo has no family, no one to go looking for her. The home will put in the required paperwork, and they've got enough living ghosts to take care of, haven't they? Ice cream, she says first off. I raise my eyebrows, and she remembers to add, please? She's like an excited pup, head turning this way and that, trying to drink in all the sights before the sun goes down and her eyes can't quite function as they need to, as they used to. Grandma Jo is happy, all white teeth, not dentury at all. 
The sun drops below the horizon and the last burst of gold-orange fire makes her eyes light up red and huge. Then the afternoon flame is gone and she's ordinary again, a little old lady with eccentric taste in escape attire. I remember these streets. Nothing seems to have changed. When I turn left, I don't find a new cul-de-sac or street pacifiers or new housing developments. When I first came back, I found the outskirts of town existing in the same strange limbo world, part rural, part suburban, farmhouses with wide porches at the front and designer barns out back, tidy white fences bordering big lots, each property not too close and not too far away from the next one over. When I'd put the key into the front door of my parents' empty house, it still turned in the lock. They travel a lot nowadays. I get postcards, picking them up from a variety of P.O. boxes around the country. But they can't seem to get rid of the place. The furniture was all where it had been. The smell was different, though. Dead air and dust. A lot of the houses around it were empty, too. Victims of the economic downturn. When I'd walk around in the dusk, I could see how dilapidated some had become. That and the distance between the farmhouses meant I didn't have to worry too much about being spotted. So, I say, trying not to act as though I'd forgotten she was there. The park and ice cream. Dessert first, hey? Delightful! All those years of having to eat my mange, and now I can please myself for a change. When I was a child, it was always no pudding if you can't eat your vegetables. Or, or was it? Her voice wavers with uncertainty. Was there food? Enough food? I wonder what else she might remember, away from the atmosphere of the home, away from the regimen of pills, the cocktail of things to calm you down, pick you up, make you sleep, wake you up, keep your bowels regular, lower your blood pressure, thin your blood. But her smile is sweet and has no depths, nothing hidden, nothing remembered. All kinds of things can forget what they were, what they are. I pull up near the cafe, the overpriced one with the bored teenager serving a limited night menu for the next couple of hours. Brittany, her badge insists. As she turns her listless attention from the young couple ahead of us, he's overweight and spotty, and she's really quite lush, and takes our order scrupulously, not making eye contact. Grandma Jo is distracted by the ice cream cone Brittany hands over, bubblegum flavor, and gives it a tentative lick. Her mouth twists askew, and this doesn't taste quite right is written all over her face. She frowns at the treat, then is diverted by something else. The girl is flipping raw, compacted, circular meat onto the grill. Red seeps up and out, turns brown on the hot metal plate. She uses an ancient wooded, wooden-handled meat cleaver to hack at the onion, and thin, translucent white slices of white join the sizzling circles, sending out mouth-watering fumes. Grandma Jo's eyes light up. Burger, she says. Brittany gives me a flat look, and I nod. You want fries with that? I want the lot. Make it two, I tell Brittany, and hand over more money. My wallet is feeling thin, a little anorexic, about time for an injection, I'd say. 
Grandma Jo's earrings would go for a pretty penny, and her pearl necklace, if I'm not mistaken. We take up metal seats that are cold without the sun. The table between us is rickety, designed in a way, I'm sure, by someone with a grudge against public eateries. I stuff a handful of paper napkins under one leg, which stops the wobbling from east to west, but causes a little bit more wobbling north to south. I give up. The dusk-dimmed lawn rolls gently down a slope in front of us to play to a play area dotted with swings and seesaws, plastic and metal spring animals, contraptions that go round and round really fast and make you want to vomit. And there are cages, koala, possum, and wallaby habitats, petting zoos for goats, sheep, and calves, and koi ponds, shallow and murky, with the occasional bright orange flash among the water plants, here and gone so quickly you doubt you saw it. A gentle breeze lifts the old lady's curls and then moves onto the leaves and branches of the trees. This is so nice. It's just so nice, Grandma Jo says. Oh, so nice. I haven't been out in a very long time. Glad you like it, I reply, thinking that everybody deserves a last day out. You're not my granddaughter, she confides, as if she's letting me in on a secret. I nod. I know. Never said I was. Fairbur, you've told the nurses at the home you were. I may have been careless with the truth, I agree. I don't mind. I was just nice to be out. I don't say anything because Brittany's bringing over our bur- burgers and bangs the plates down so hard on the table top so the fries do a little dance as if they're trying to make a break for freedom. Grandma Jo makes a grab for her burger, bites down through the inflated bun, tearing through the tomato, onion, lettuce, and egg, and into the meat patty, which is burnt on the outside and pink on the inside. Crimson juice spurts. Or maybe that's beetroot? And the white teeth turn in a rusting shade of pink. My appetite deserts me faster than a deadbeat dad on child support day. I eat half a chip, push the plate away. The old lady helps herself to my food when hers is gone without so much as a buy or leave. I look away, down toward the swings, where two small kids are playing, seemingly unattended by any adults. I think of my sister on the swing that hung from the tree, marking the boundary between two properties. It makes me nervous and angry that people are so careless with their kids, so ignorant of what lives in the dark, willfully ignorant. Alexander loved burgers, she says, pushing her dead husband name out around the last mouthful. Little sheds, shreds of lettuce fly across the table. He was a meat man. I bet. Where did you meet? He was so handsome. He was a Russian soldier and... I was a Red Cross nurse, she frowns. Wasn't I? Your story. I remember cold. I remember snow. The trace of an accent creeps in, and I don't suppose I expected that. I looked for her for so long, but I can't remember if she had one before. Grandma Jo, where were you born? Me? Why, here, of course. But I traveled. Yes, I've went so many places. The accent is stronger. Didn't I? I watch her talk almost to herself, picking through lies and memories and trying to knit them together. 
I had a family, so many brothers and sisters, all of us fighting for food, fighting so hard. Then it fades. I can see it in her face, remembrances dissolving one by one like candles blown out at bedtime. Around us, the night is suddenly heavy and empty, and she's a sweet old lady with pale blue eyes and a gentle, lost sort of smile. I need to powder my nose, she announces. The sign for the toilets indicates they're attached to the cafe, the entrance just along the sidewall, and I point. And she makes her way with a tottering elegance, clutching her handbag towards the bathroom. The door closes behind her with a whisper. I lean forward, rubbing my eyes until I see stars against the black of my lids. Am I right? Is this a mistake? Have I been tracking so long that I no longer see the signs? Have I gone blind to what's in front of me? Do I now imagine danger in every shadow, see a monster in every pensioner I meet? All those times I've ever, I've never doubted. How many have there been before this one? The one that started everything. The night is so quiet, just the distant rumble of cars and the last creaks of the now deserted swing set. I feel as if my sister sits at my shoulder, but when I open my eyes, there's nothing, no one. I look about. The young couple moved off long ago and Brittany is applying a premature end-of-night enthusiasm to cleaning the grill. Making my way to the toilets, I push the door open. Grandma Jo is washing her hands, handbag pooled on the slightly grubby floor at her feet. The light from the naked bulbs on the ceiling makes her hair shine silvery purple. She looks up and sees me in the mirror. I stand behind her and smile finding the hanging ends of her long, silky scarf and twining them in my fingers. What a lovely scarf, Grandma Jo. She smiles back until she feels the silk tightening. But she doesn't raise her hands, doesn't struggle, doesn't do anything while her eyes start to bulge, tongue protrudes, lips go a little bluer in the bathroom lights. She's not as heavy as I let her slowly slip to the ground. Grandma Jo makes a very small pile in the corner of the stall. I close the door, lock it, then stand on the toilet lid and heave myself over the top. The handbag is on the tiles, soaked in a combination of water and urine. I open it, dig carefully around inside. Three rolls of peppermints, a can of mace, a variety of keys, a coin purse, a pair of support hose all wrapped up, and then the book. A diary with a battered cover. But it doesn't look the way my memory says it should. It's blue, not brown. There's no gold on the edges of the paper. No leather ties to hold the thing together. Maybe I misremember. It's been a long time. I flip through the book. Notes in a blue pen, sometimes a red pen. The handwritten, handwriting grows worse, more spidery as dates progress. The notes less comprehensible. And no photos. Not a one. Nothing's that's supposed to be there. A weight that might be Grandma Joe presses on my chest, surprisingly heavy for a little old lady. Back at home, it must be there. In a drawer, under neatly folded clothes or on top of a wardrobe, it has to be there. In the east wing, there are rooms that, adar- that are dark because their inhabitants are asleep. Others because they're simply empty. In fact, the east wing is the least populated part of the home. 
only for the moment, a brief ebb tide in the population. Grandma Joe's door is closed, but not locked. No one, it seems, has realized she's missing yet. There are no police cars out the front of the building, no rushing, panicking staff, no administrator racing around like a bureaucratic chicken trying to cover up the careless loss of an inmate. I close the door behind me and flick the switch. The space is bathed in yellow light. There's a thin bed with a pastel pink duna and a crocheted rug at the foot, a brown rocker recliner, a bank of photos cover one wall, all Grandma Joe and Alexander, a lead-like cabinet filled with crystal commemorative spoons and porcelain dolls. A tall stack of drawers stands next to the long glass window. I pull open the top one and start going through the neat shirts and light cardigans. In between the folds of fabric are necklaces, rings, bracelets, and earrings, all of which would pay my way for long months. But I don't stop to pocket them. I keep digging one drawer after the next. In the last one, there's nothing. I turn towards the cupboard, and the weight on my chest is getting heavier, growing like a stain on the carpet. I had a family, so many brothers and sisters, all of us fighting for food, fighting so hard, so hungry and so cold. We walked the white, and so few of us came out. I was strong. Did she say that? I didn't even hear the door, a woman's voice, and old. She's only a silhouette against the open doorway. I nod. Some of it. I taught her so many times. I made her say it over and over. She cried, but I promised her. I promised if she did, someone would rescue her. Someone would take her away. Laughter lifts the voice, and Mrs. Buddenbaum steps into the dim room. You took her away, didn't you, Kirsty? I feel a chill limbo its way down my spine. I find it useful to have some camouflage, she sniggers. I remember frozen and red on white, she says, and I feel myself fall out of time. I remember my sister there one day, gone the next. I remember red on the white of snow and limbs frozen in place. She goes on, your sister was sweet. She steps back out and I follow her slowly along the quiet corridor. In her room, she takes up residence in a rocking chair. How did you find me? Cold trails, reports of missing children. Nothing that got me here very fast. Oh, but you were only, what, eight when we met? You couldn't have done much for years after that. I watched a lot of news, a lot of crime alert shows. I kept scrapbooks. Like this? The tiny little octagonal coffee table beside her has a drawer in the front. She reaches in and pulls out a heavy leather-bound book. This is exactly as I remember. She opens the cover and leaves through thoughtfully, each page covered with children's photographs, some family snapshots stolen from grieving homes, some neatly clipped from newspapers. It looks like a diary, but I know what it for what it is, a menu. Ah, yes, she gently pulls out a photo, smaller than it should be, half torn away, and holds it up. My sister, age nine, smiles back at me. 
Her arms lead to the ragged edge of the paper cut off at the forearm, and the space that's gone is where I once was. It was so good of you to give me this. I do like to have my memories all in one place. She'd said back in the old days when her name was, however briefly, Lily Powers, Auntie Lil to the neighborhood, that she'd wanted the photos of her special friends. I gave it to her three days before my sister disappeared. If I let my eyes lose focus a little, let things blur the wrinkles on her face, let this little deception strip away the last 20 years, I can see it. I can see the nice lady who rented the house next door at the end of summer, baked cookies for us, and made real lemonade, then one day took my sister's life and disappeared just as quickly in the night before anyone knew. When my sister was seen again, it was in small pieces and patches of red on white. I swallow all these memories coming back here. It's made me stupid. I'm unarmed. All of my lovely, sharp things left in the boot of the car because I was sure I had taken out the monster. How many? We ask the question at the same time. Age before beauty, I say, and she grins. That's the spirit. Never wonder why I took her and not you. Why I took little Sally. She waves the photo, makes it look as though it's walking in the air. Because she was sweet and you were not. Even then, you were a sour little troll. Takes one to know one, I tell her, but my heart twists. I had wondered for so long, and with so much guilt, and with that tiny, stupid, insane little echo of, why not me? How many? Hundreds? Thousands? So many years? So many meals? She shrugs, gestures at the diary. And you? A lot, I say. A lot of strange blood between then and now. A lot of your kind out there. More than people might think. How many mistakes? How many Grandma Joes? I ignore that. Why come back? Didn't you worry someone might recognize you? Did you? But I recognized you. She sings songs as if she's caught me out. That little bitter mouth. Those dark, angry eyes. Never fear. No one else could know you. No one else watches like me. My hands are shaking. I have so enjoyed our chat. Nothing lasts forever, though, does it? She stands and offers me the photo. I suppose I knew I, my run would come to an end someday. Disarmed, I step across the room and reach for the photo. My fingers touch the torn edge and Mrs. B grabs my wrist. I find myself on my back, the photo fluttering away on the air. My hand rests against Mrs. B's surprisingly hard thigh, and her stringy arm is wrapped around my throat. A cold, hard sharpness presses against the flesh. But not today. The blade bites, and my blood trickles warmly. Pity you're too old for me now. So I do so hate waste. More pressure for a second. And then it's gone, and a smelly, silky mass bounds up on my body and sinks its teeth into Mrs. B's wrist. The dog hangs on for dear life until the Swiss army knife goes flying and the old lady manages to dislodge the animal. Gypsy hits the wall with the same noise as a squeaky toy and lies still. I roll over, gasping for breath. Outside, there are sounds stirring, of stirring. I struggle to my feet. 
The room is empty. On the floor lies the photo of my sister and, not far from it, the pocket knife. Its blade slick and dark. I pocket both and fly out the door. Blood tracks along the white corridor, through the day room, and out the patio doors. The gate meant to keep the inhabitants in is hanging off its hinges. How fast is she? How strong? Out the gate and left, past my car. Ahead of me, I can see a white blur in the darkness moving into the stretch of nature reserve on the other side of the road. I follow. Deep in the trees, with beams of moonlight streaking through branches, I can't make out much, but I can hear her crashing ahead of me. Then, quiet. I keep moving. Branches reach out and scratch my face. Somewhere close by, an animal has died and is busy rotting. A snapping sound, then heavy breathing, and the sensation of being hit from the side, knocking the air out of my lungs. I fall, my nose and mouth filling with a combination of dirt and grass. I roll over as quickly as I can, spitting and coughing, but she's on my chest in a flash. The old bitch leans in, eyes bulging and lined with darkest red, face smooth, the ball wrinkles, and a mouth open wide as wide can be, lined with two rows of teeth, shiny sharp. I wonder if this was the last thing my sister saw all those years ago when the snow came and something walked through the white and turned her into a red smear on the pristine ground, something that transformed them into winter children and left ragged remains behind to mark their passing. Long-fingered hands press at my throat, tightening the nails sawing into my flesh, Little explosions are happening at the edges of my vision, and I can feel the blood flowing from the gashes in my throat. In my pocket is the weight of the knife, painfully imprinting its shape into my skin, impossible to get with Mrs. B on top of me. My left hand is trying to pry her fingers away from my throat. The right is scratching around in the dirt, desperately seeking, finding a large stick, a small branch. Sharp enough, sturdy enough, I hope. I pull it back trying to get as much force behind it as I can, and then I jam it into her side. For a few seconds, the flesh resists, then the pointy end pushes in, makes a sound, and she makes a sound. I twist the stick, getting in further and further. I angle it upwards, and her grip loosens. I imagine I hear a pop somewhere in her chest, and her mouth opens to emit a sigh, laden with nothing so much as disappointment. Mrs. B slumps on top of me. I slide her on to the side and claw my way upwards, standing, swaying, staring down at her vacant eyes, at the two rows of teeth still gleaming in the moonlight. I look down at my boots with their steel caps. At first, I kick and feel the side of her head cave in. I switch to stomping and watch her face dissolve into a mess of crushed flesh and fractured bones. The blood looks black in the moonlight. I limp back to my car, open the door and sit, half in, half out, gingerly breathing as my ribs protest. The trickle of blood around my throat is already slowing, going from slick to sticky. I lean my head back, close my eyes. Time to get out of town. Time to leave. No time to go back to my parents and pick up the few pieces of clothing I have left. No one will look there. My parents won't be home any year soon. In the darkness, something licks my shin, and I just about piss my pants. 
I kick out and connect with a furry softness, but all I hear is an apologetic whimper. Gypsy limps into the splash of light thrown from the car's interior and looks at me again. It's her mistress's blood, I guess. I have no choice but to pick her up. She curls on the passenger seat and goes to sleep, the scent of slightly damp dog filling the vehicle. I'll get her to a vet as soon as I can between Mrs. me and Mrs. B. She'll need some attention. I turn the key in the ignition and listen for a moment to the rumble of the engine. It's the sort of sound to keep monsters at bay. I peel off into the night, unsure if I feel lighter or lost. There are always places to get lost. The end. Well, I hope you enjoyed that story. I'm not sure if you could hear in the background, there was a little bit of chaos going on in my house as the uh, pets were attacking each other. Uh, But, you know, it is what it is. Overall, I thought that the story was something, uh, I guess, like typical horror. uh, And also a little unusual in the idea of bringing up the old woman. A lot of a lot of horror stories kind of lead with it being a vampire or you know a, a monster of some sorts, um, and then it kind of uh, becomes hard to believe from the very beginning. But I like this one because you know up until the end you kind of just think it's an old woman who's just going around murdering kids and eating them you know just your yeah old age cannibal running amok but I like that in the end it it does turn out to be a monster and I hope that you liked it too so uh have a good night good luck on the trail Uh, be careful in the rain and remember that the storm will come to an end and happy trails.